0: Ezekiel uh, chapter 38 and 39, um, I've studied it since I was a kid. I actually woke up my parents one night uh, when we all went to bed and I was up reading my Bible and uh, I I knocked on their door and went in and they were asleep. Uh, And when I woke them up from their sleep, uh, (laughs) my dad's like, what, what do you want? And I said, well, I was reading Ezekiel 38 and 39 and I just had some, some questions about prophecy and how this relates to the world in which we live. This is probably 1969 or 1970. Um, and my dad's like, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, so I've studied that text for a long time. And, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, it is very interesting because what it does, if you read it, uh, it is a prophecy, uh, given concerning the, the, the day of the Lord, the end of time, the tribulation. And what it says, uh, is that Israel will be attacked from the North and from the South in a pincer movement. Um, and, and it identifies by ancient names the countries. And so I, uh, I've listed all the names of the countries, identified them in their modern equivalent if you want to look at my notes. But um, uh, at the top of the list is Rosh, which is Russia. Uh, Turkey's in there, uh, ancient Persia, Iran. Um, they're all in there. Ethiopia in the south, Libya in the south. I mean, they're all listed to attack Israel. And so when you, when you look at prophecy like that, that will be literally fulfilled, and you look at the, what's going on in the world today, you could easily surmise Whoa, this is being set up. I can see this absolutely happening because who who arms Hezbollah in the north? Russia. Russia And I would have been on the Syrian border here in a few days looking at in the Veqa Valley because I take my tour groups there and we, we study the Yom Kippur War. Uh, I know who arms Hezbollah in the north, uh, and I know that Iran arms uh, Hamas in the south. And I know how dangerous that area is from being there for 20-something years. But when you look at what prophecy says, it's being set up for this to happen. So someone could come along and say, we're either right at the cusp of the seven-year tribulation or we're in it. Uh, well, that, uh, that would be an erroneous assumption. It wouldn't be erroneous to say uh, geopolitically the world is being set up uh, for the final day of the Lord when the Lord will deal with Israel and deal with the godless. We are definitely being set up for that because you can see that geopolitically happening. But we're not in the tribulation. Because sometimes people take... Uh, Geopolitical events, things that are happening, and they relate them to eschatology uh, at the wrong time. That's what they did in Thessalonica. They looked at the persecution the Christians faced there, uh, and people came into the church and told them, uh, in light of what Paul has taught about eschatology, which, by the way, we studied this last week. The eschatology is the study of what? The end times. And so, when you when they would infiltrate the church, they would say, "Well, Paul's taught about eschatology, and obviously, the persecution you're facing tells you that you're in the tribulation." Uh, no. No, this is, this is not the tribulation, and that is what Paul is going to answer in, in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, uh, that you're not in the tribulation, and, no, and the church of Jesus Christ will never be in the tribulation. And if the church of Jesus Christ was going to be in the tribulation, this was a perfect opportunity for Paul to tell them, you're going to go through the tribulation, so buckle up and get ready for a rough ride. That is not what he told them. He didn't tell them that in 1 Thessalonians four thirteen to 18. And he definitely doesn't tell them that in 2 Thessalonians chapter two, written several months after the first letter, when now they're messed up again on the timing of the tribulation. But it's easy to look at geopolitical events and make the wrong assumption about them. So Paul's correcting them and telling them, um, You're not in the tribulation. I've taught you about this. Let's go back over the evidence to show you where, where you are uh, in history and what God is going to do. And as he does this in the first 17 verses of uh, this prophecy, the whole uh, chapter, chapter two, is a prophecy from Paul. Uh, He's going to answer the, the question uh, Are we in the tribulation? And he's going to tell them, no, let me give you the reasons why. Three reasons. And as you look at those three reasons, we've already covered two of them, so that you would surmise this is going to be a short sermon. You would surmise wrong. Uh, When you look at the answers, it basically boils down to this motif, is how can Christians in the here and now be prepared for the prophesied tough times of the end times? Because it's prophesied, it's going to be tough until the Lord returns, But then what am I supposed to do as a Christian when times are tough? And so Paul says, let let me give you uh, some uh, ideas to think about as you live in the times that are heading toward uh, the judgment of God upon the wicked. Um, But let me give you some things to to reason through as you're thinking about how to live and also some understanding of why you're not in the tribulation. Uh, Number one, just to review, because review is a wonderful thing because brain cells die daily, as I have said before, right? And if you don't believe me, just park your car at the Kennedy Center and try to find it if you're over 50 after the concert. And you're like, what floor is it on? Yeah, um, or even at Safeway. You lose your car at Safeway? Yeah. yeah, that's a problem. So Paul says, number one, do not be hoodwinked. Uh, hoodwinked by what? By people telling you, this must be the tribulation. This is the tribulation. I've read all kinds of stuff about what's going on in Israel related to eschatology. And it's like, whoa, they, they have not read the scriptures. So what do the scriptures say? And what Paul says, well, don't be hoodwinked. Don't, don't be led astray by somebody uh, telling you something that is not true. So uh, we might be in prepped for the tribulation right now, but we're not in it. Uh, and we're not gonna ever be in it because the, the Lord's gonna deliver his church as we're gonna see. Number two, uh, by way of review, do be honed in. Honed in means you should study eschatology. I mean, you should study prophecy. I mean, as we said last week, the majority of the Old Testament is prophecy. I mean, think about all the books that are, there's the major prophets and the minor prophets. And the only difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet is how long the book is. It's pretty simple. People go get four-year degrees in theology to learn that deep truth. So how many chapters in the book of Isaiah? Why are you so quiet? We play Bible trivia here on Sunday mornings. So 66, right? 66. How many chapters in Obadiah, the prophet? one, just one, just one. So he's a minor prophet and Isaiah is a major prophet. So like, why wouldn't you study those books? Well, you should as a Christian. Why? So that you know what's going to happen. So you have a great hope of what's going on. Uh, and you don't fear fear because, well, you fear God and you know, his hand is on the wheel and his King is going to come. Today, we're going to add one point. It's a one point sermon. Uh, don't be disappointed. I don't know that I've ever done a one-point sermon. So don't call Dallas Seminary and tell him he's drifting. He's off to one one point. (laughs) What does he tell you in verses six to seven? We're only gonna cover two verses. What does he tell you here? He says, do be courageous. Because it's easy when you look at the times in which we live to be fearful and to run and hide. He says, no, 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 be courageous. Watch how he develops this point. He says in verse six, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed. Now, if you weren't here last week, we were talking about the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. That was verses one to five. Uh, he says, uh, You can't be in the tribulation because the man of sin, the beast, the Antichrist, has not been revealed. So there's, there's no way you could be in the tribulation. So, in that context, in verse six, he's now saying, The he here is a reference back to the antichrist. So he says he's being restrained right now, uh, but he's going to be revealed in due time. So let's analyze that. Uh, How important are personal pronouns? They are very important, aren't they? So he says the personal pronoun here, he uh, is important because who is that? Well, it's the antichrist. He is restrained from appearing right now. The devil would like nothing more than to release the antichrist on the planet. The ultimate statist, the ultimate diplomat, the ultimate politician, erudite, excellent speaker, great reasoner, but evil to his core, inspired by the devil himself. He would love nothing better than to release him, but he can't. Why? He's restrained. He's restrained. Uh, the word for restrained, kateko in the Greek text, um, Uh, I went through my uh, uh, lexicon uh, and counted it up. There there are eight lexical meanings for this word, eight eight different nuances of to restrain something. But in its base form, they could have shortened that particular entry a lot by just saying this. To restrain something is to keep something or someone from doing what they want to do. You're restraining it, right? You ever take a ball into a swimming pool and put it under the water and then sit on it and try to float around? You ever do this crazy thing? bigger the ball, the harder it is. And if you move too quickly to the right or the left, what happens? It's, thank you. It, the ball pops up. Uh, but but you, you are restraining that ball because what does that ball want to do? It wants to float. And so, so the devil wants to unleash the man of sin on the planet because he hates mankind and he loves evil, but he can't do it because he's restrained. He's held back from that. So uh, if you read my notes tomorrow online, I don't usually do this, but I gave you the the two page, well, it's a page and a half of all the eight entries of what that word means. That leads to a couple of observations. When you think about this word kateko to restrain, uh, it is a present tense participle. So if pronouns are important, participles really are important. Why? Well, if it's a present tense participle to restrain something, it means it's an ongoing, uninterrupted activity. So the devil is being restrained from doing what he wants to do on earth with evil. Uh, to allow the man of total lawlessness to appear. He's being restrained perpetually by a force because uh, we know that this verb, uh, not like English. English is a very difficult language to learn, is it not? Yeah, German's way easier. Why? Does anybody speak German? German. Yeah, oh, good. Okay, so in, in German as a case in point, you have case endings like nominative, dative, genitive, accusative. So when you read a sentence, you can easily find what's the subject of the sentence? The nominative, you know? You know, what's a direct object, what's an indirect object? And you just run around the sentence, picking up all the words and then you translate it. That's the same way with Greek. Greek is beautiful. It's, it's really easy to learn after you learn German because it's got case endings. And you look at the case endings. And so when you look at the case endings here, masculine, feminine, neuter. All right. This particular case ending of this participle is a neuter. What does neuter mean? Well, it means it's not female and it's not male. It's an it. It's like a force. So there's a force that holds back the devil from doing what he wants to do. This leads to two questions. Who or what is the restrainer? And two, Who's capable to hold back the devil? Now, I get paid to study and read all day. It's it's a great job to be a pastor. I'm just telling you, because it is what I love to do. And I was going to give you all the views of what this is. It's not worth our time. I'll just tell you what I think it is. it's much simpler, isn't it? Yes. Who is the restrainer? Uh, Well, and, and who can hold back the devil? The restrainer up front, just to tell you up front, is God himself. Why? Because only God can hold back evil. Only God can hold the devil in check. Uh, Dr. Edmund Hebert, a Greek scholar, says this. He says, only a supernatural person can truly frustrate the supernatural workings of Satan. He says, this would at once rule out human agencies as well as all evil supernatural agents. Only a superhuman restrainer can do this work. Absolutely agree with him. Only God can do that. When you read through the Bible, you see God restraining evil. This is what he does. Uh, he's a problem for the devil. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 3, in verse 3, we, ri- we read right before God sends the Noahic flood on the planet because of the increase of man's wickedness. We read in verse 3, Moses or Noah hears these words from the Lord. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So God's going to limit a, a lifespan of mankind. You're not going to live for six, 700 years like they did at the beginning of man. Just read Genesis 5 and you'll see how long they lived. I'm going to shorten that. Why? Because you, you, the longer you live, the more evil you do. And so God says, but my spirit's not going to c- c- strive with man forever. Meaning God's holiness has a limit to how much evil he's going to watch. Does he just walk off the world stage and go, Psh, and I never created that. That's a mess. No, no, he comes in judgment, judges the godless and rewards the righteous uh, and continues working on his kingdom plan. And so uh, God does restrain evil. You go back to Genesis and you can see it. How about the story of Job? Uh, Wasn't God restraining the devil in relationship to Job? Uh, in the, in the, uh, I took a, a Hebrew class uh, my senior year at Dallas uh, on, the, on the exegesis of Job from a, a professor from Harvard. And it was a great, great class. I had, a, I had an excellent time in there uh, studying the argument of Job and the whole book of Job. is excellent. But in the very first chapter, you, you understand that there's a throne room of God. And in the throne room of God, Satan has access to come among the sons of God, which is a code word in, uh, in Hebrew for angels. So the devil, the former head of the angelic class has the ability to enter into the presence of God in a courtroom like, uh, like a prosecutor and bring accusation against God's people. And we studied this when we studied first uh, John that our advocate in that courtroom is Jesus himself. And the whole goal of the Christian life as a sidelight um, cause it wasn't in my notes uh, is, is, is to not keep the Lord very busy in that courtroom. Because the devil's gonna look at all, all that you're doing and bring it up before the Lord and try to slander you with it. And then Jesus steps forward and says, uh-uh. Well, that's what he was doing with Job. And so he comes before God uh, in God's courtroom and, and he tells God, you know, I'm I, watching this godly man, Job, if you just turn him over to me, I can, I bet you he will curse you because you've built a hedge about him. Now, nobody knows what the hedge is. You, if this is one of your big questions when you see God, just pull it out of your pocket if you've got it and just, Lord, I was kind of wondering. What what is the hedge? Some kind of hedge, some kind of protective shield he put around him uh, from the devil doing anything to him. So what does God do? He says, okay, I'll tell you what. I will let you strike him. You just cannot strike his body. So the devil leaves God's courtroom and immediately strikes Job big time, doesn't he? He loses his family. I mean, he loses like his flocks. He loses everything. And then in verse 21 of Job chapter one, we read this. And after Job's experienced all these personal losses, he said... Naked I came out of my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. There is no greater thing ever said. It's awesome words. He looked at ultimate tragedy and said, God bless me with all of this. God took all of this away. I trust his sovereignty. I may not understand it, but I'll still walk with him. Don't you know the devil was having a, I think the Greek word is conniption fit. <laughs> Don't you know he was freaking out? So what did he do? Um, well, he comes back and, uh, and he says, uh, well, hey, chapter two, let me strike his body. That one didn't work. Let me strike him and he will really curse you. Well, if you read the rest of the book, um, how's it go for the devil? nugget. I mean, devil, Job does struggle uh, with the things that happen to him physically, but he remains a great godly man. And yeah, he has questions about what God is allowing, but but he remained strong and true. Who was restraining the evil against him? The Lord. The Lord himself was saying, I'm going to protect that godly man. Uh, So here's the thing. The devil could do no more than God would permit him to do. Did you hear me? The devil could do more, no more than God would permit him to do. Applicable back then, applicable today. God has a plan. Uh, God therefore is the restrainer, but the next question, which logical minds want to know, well, in a Trinity, uh, which one is, we have that kind of church, don't we? It's not, a, I can't just say God's doing it. Cause someone's going to go, yeah, but there's a Trinity. Um, well, I think it's the spirit of God that holds him back. Why? Uh, the spirit of God is consen- consistently referred to by Jesus. Like in John 14 and John 16, when he promises another comforter, uh, He uses masculine pronouns to refer to himself, but the word spirit, pneuma, the Holy Spirit is neuter. Well, neuter is what this force is. It's a neuter uh, uh, gender as it were. Uh, And I think that's on purpose because the the spirit is both a force and the third member of the Trinity. Uh, Here's some text to recall. First Corinthians 12, 13 says, for by one spirit, we as Christians were all baptized into one body, uh, this is the body of Christ, his mystical body. Whether we're Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all as Christians made to drink of one spirit. Uh, he baptizes us into the spirit. The word spirit is neuter. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you as a Christian are the temple of God and that the spirit neuter of God dwells in you? The answer is yes, he dwells in you. So why should you be very careful what you do with your life, what you think in your mind, how you speak and react to life? Because you are the very temple of God. How holy is that? Will the holy Spirit lives with you? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? I'm not free to go do whatever I want to do because I have a holy resident, the Spirit of God, who pricks the conscience, doesn't he, when you sin? And you're like, oh man, I know I shouldn't have gone 65 in a 25, Right? Anyway, moving on to convicting Ephesians 1:13. in him. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, also having believed you were sealed in him in Jesus with the Holy spirit of promise, who's given to you as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy spirit sealed you. Uh, he put a stamp on you and he's, he's like your engagement ring of more to come. And the reason why I believe in eternal security is You never get unsealed. Just read chapter four, verse 30, where he says as much. So the spirits, uh, masculine, feminine, or neuter? Neuter. Neuter. Don't you love grammar? Why is it important? Because he says there's a force that holds back the devil, uh, and that force is, well, it's... it it can be called a a neuter and it can also be called uh, that which is masculine as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter two says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So what has happened here? He's gone from the neuter. It's a force. Now he calls it a person. It's a he. Why do you do that? Because he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He is a force to be reckoned with but he's also personal. And so he says that the devil, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, he's at work in the world today, but he can't really bust loose. Why? Because he hasn't been taken out of the way by the one who restrains him. Who can restrain the devil? God. Which part of the Godhead is restraining the devil in our world today? The Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit right now? I mean, I I know he's omnipresent, but where is he specifically? in every single believer in you. Did you know that you are the devil's greatest problem to this culture? Why, because he wants to just unleash lawlessness. And then there you are, you got the spirit in you. And what's he do? He's moving you to restrain wickedness and lawlessness. Uh, but it says that one day he will be taken out of the way. So when the Lord raptures the church before the tribulation begins, uh, that when the, when the church is removed, that's when the spirit is taken out of the way, but you cannot take the spirit who's omnipresent and completely remove him from the planet or he's not God, right? Right. So in what sense is he removed? Uh, he's removed and like he was before Pentecost. It's going to be the reverse of Pentecost. So before Pentecost was the spirit on the planet. Yes. Uh, and who did he indwell in the old Testament? Prophets, priests kings and artisans who built the tabernacle and the temple. He was in people, but not in groups of people. So at, at this particular time when the church is raptured, the spirit is, re, is taken out of the way in the sense he's going back to the mode that he was before. So his church will be in heaven where he will be, but since he's omnipresent, he will still be down here, but only dealing with select individuals. So when you study the book of Revelation, you will find many people will come to know Christ in the tribulation. Just read Revelation 7. How will they come to, to know Christ as the Messiah if the Spirit is not here, according to John 14 and 16, convicting them of sin? He will be here. But he will be like he was in the Old Testament days, and the church will be departed, and they will be with the Lord himself enjoying the glories of heaven while God begins to judge the earth. But in the meantime, who's restraining evil in our day and time? Well, the Holy Spirit is. And where is he? He's in the church. Is the church this building? Nope. Nope. No, the church is composed of anybody who knows Christ. Did you know that a Presbyterian could be saved? (laughs) Is it possible for a United Methodist to be saved? Only a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about a Southern Baptist? Well, if they're not too fiery, yeah. Yeah, I mean, anybody that knows Jesus as Lord and Savior Is part of the mystical body of Christ. They're a member of the church. And what are they in this culture until the Lord calls us home with the trumpet? They are by definition, ipso facto, restraining evil. What is your job until the Lord comes back? Let me give you some ideas. What should you be doing? Since the restrainer lives in you and you are a part of the restraint, what should you be doing? Here's some ideas. Like 15 of them, you ready? What should we be doing? We as those who have the restrainer living with us, we should strive to be law-abiding citizens. So you should not pass me at 65 miles an hour and a 25, right? Just saying, why are you not talking? Just be a law-abiding citizen. Number two, we should oppose lawbreakers whenever and however we can. Three, we should, oppo- we should oppose legislators who seek to enact laws that cultivate further lawlessness. Four, we should work to rewrite laws that encourage lawlessness. Next, we should peacefully demonstrate when schools push lawlessness on our children. We are there to defend them. Um, we should support politicians with, who respect law and order because they do exist. Um, we should not embrace cultural issues that challenge us to abandon the ancient truths of the Holy Scripture no matter what. Uh, we should live lives that reflect kingdom principles that laid out by our Lord. In case you wonder what they are, just read Matthew 5-7 to and go live those things. Because what does the world need? They need to see a Christian living kingdom principles in the here and now. Uh, we should read, preach, and teach the word of God with compassion and without equivocation. This is, we love you, but we love you enough to teach the truth of God's word to you. We should crucify sinful passions that were against your lives. Be what they may so that those around you can see the power of the gospel. That when you get saved, wow, radical change begins to happen. And when the world needs to see that, sinful passions. We need to strive to share the life-giving gospel with everybody like the early church did. Read Acts. What did they do? They constantly shared, the Savior is risen. He died for your sins. Do you know him? This should be the very thing that we talk about constantly. We must commit to not being silent when we see dark, darkness macerating as light. All the time we see this, we speak up. Uh, We must utterly be committed to speaking truth in all forms, whether uh, moral truth, uh, biblical truth. Uh, And we will not perpetuate lies. I will not perpetuate lies as a saint. I will speak truth. Uh, We must be committed to not being silenced when truth is at stake. We must uh, listen to the hurting, the broken, the dysfunctional, because Jesus did. I got up at five this morning and I'm reading a book on the life of Christ. And my chapter this morning was about how the, 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 the leper came to Christ at Capernaum and got close to Jesus. And rabbis back then would throw stones at lepers to keep them six feet away from them, lest they get leprosy. what Jesus do? He touches the man. <laughs> he touches him why he loved him. And the man then says in all humility, if you will, you can make me clean. And what did Jesus do? I will it. The man was clean. It's the power of the gospel. Um, we must study cultural issues, identify uh, where they espouse truth and where they embrace lies and then challenge people to pursue truth. Easy to do, no, but it's what we must do, why? Because we are salt and we are light. What does salt do in the ancient culture? Holds back decay in meat. And what does light do? Well, it drives away darkness. So in my estimation, we should be brave as a Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We should be uh, as culturally keen as a Francis Schaeffer and we should be as bold and powerful and loving as a Paul. And ultimately we should really reflect Christ. Will you be part of those who restrain evil? Basically the commitment is Lord, you can, I already told the Lord this week, you can count on me. Can he count on you? And if you don't know Christ, today's the day to come to know him. Let's stand. Lord, we pause to give you thanks. We praise you for who you are. We are your church. um, And we pray for the, the church at large to be courageous. Uh, to hold back evil as we're called to wherever you've placed us, whether we're a judge, a policeman, an officer on a military unit, whatever we are, help us to do our part in speaking up and out for you with love and compassion, but without equivocation so that many can be turned to the Christ and come to know him in Christ's name. Amen.